Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. This week, in Episode 9, Stringy Bark Creek, Part 1, we'll continue the history of the Kelly Gang, looking at the fallout from the Fitzpatrick incident discussed in last episode. Then we're going to focus on the notorious confrontation between a police search party and the Kellys. It's a very disturbing and desperately sad part of the story, actually, and it leads to grief for all of the families involved. As always, there will be some additional supporting material for this episode on the Australian Histories podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. You can also find a tab there for contact. And if you have been following the series and have been enjoying it, please take a moment the next time you are logged into your preferred podcatcher or iTunes and do give the Australian Histories podcast a like or a star rating or leave a positive message about the podcast, mainly to encourage me and to help make it more visible and grow our little listening community. Positive comments help boost the visibility of the podcast when people are looking for new things to listen to, so I'd really appreciate that. It's very rewarding to watch the listener stats slowly growing, so share away. (laughs) If you are new to the Australian History Podcasts, we are currently partway through a rather in-depth story of the Cali Gang. This saga started at Episode 3, Beverage, with Ned Kelly's early life, if you'd care to download that and work through them in a chronological order. Otherwise, if you're ready for episode 9, let's jump straight in now. Okay, so following on from last episode, after Constable Fitzpatrick reported an attack on him by the Kellys, and the resulting charges and sentencing of Alan Kelly, Bill Skilling and Bricky Williamson, months had passed, with no joy for the police in tracking down and catching Ned and Dan, despite the hundred-pound reward on their heads. The Kelly boys had wisely headed for the hills and were busy fuming on the matter, prospecting and planning in preparation for funding an appeal for Alan and the others. They'd been living in a timber slab hut at Bullet Creek, now Kelly Creek, and also taking the opportunity to practice their shooting skills in anticipation of a seemingly inevitable run-in with the police now. The hut had been fortified with sheets of iron on the doors, so they were preparing for a substantial and probably violent showdown. Trees around had been cleared for better vision and others showed the evidence of being used for target practice. Several of the old greeter mob boys came and went, skilled in discreet bushmanship and avoiding the police and informers, bringing the Kelly's supplies and information about the police goings-on. Some historians think that their sometime visitors there included Tom Lloyd Jr., Aaron Sherritt, and possibly even Wild Wright from time to time, though with his mouth always running off at the pub, he might have been more of a liability than a help, so perhaps not. Certainly, by October, though, Steve Hart and Joe Byrne were living there too and working with the Kellys. Many of the local families had an axe to grind with the authorities, and as the police harassment increased for the friends of the Kellys, so too did the desire grow amongst those feeling put upon to support the Kellys and obstruct the police. It was clear that many of the locals must have been assisting and supporting them in their provisioning and movements about the area. 
sympathisers will have found the harsh sentencing and dubious justice meted out to Alan and the others, on the very suspect evidence of Fitzpatrick, completely unsupportable. The following police raids and arrests would have fostered an even stronger resolve to resist, resulting in quite the opposite outcome from the intention. That no one took the opportunity to cash in the £100 reward, £100 being a substantial sum in the day, indicates loyalty amongst their friends and family and the depth of their support. However, Police Superintendent Sadley's plan was to hunt down Ned and Dan by stealth. One criticism of the police force in the past, particularly in relation to the long hunt for the bushranger Harry Power, was how inept they often were at working in the bush environment around them. It was said the police rarely ventured off the roads and virtually broadcast their intentions by their inept behaviour, thus allowing the local Bush Telegraph plenty of time to pass on the information about the police plans. That they were fearful, poorly trained and incapable of navigating or functioning in the deep bush. And to an extent this would have been true. Most of the constables were sent into the area from metropolitan Melbourne or from some other regional town and had no local knowledge of the area or the people in it, except for what their regional supervisors would have told them. Many were fairly recent arrivals from the old countries, so the Australian bush itself was a complete mystery to them. And the best men were often not those chosen for any task, around greeter at least. Certainly the whole force was poorly provisioned and resourced, and they had very little training and no opportunity to practice with their weapons. In 1902, Constable McIntyre published a short memoir in relation to his interaction with the Kellys. So many other accounts, articles and books, etc. having been published in the intervening years, and his being the only first-person witness at the Stringybark Creek incident, he felt it important to, quote, set the record straight, unquote, and explain all that went on. We'll look again at his memoir in the course of this episode, and the next, but in relation to the police training, he makes the following observations. He records several incidents in his police life which indicate that the police resources, training and support were worse than poor. Indeed, they were often a hindrance to their work, stating, quote, How much gold has been escorted along bush roads by men who never fired a shot in their lives, and certainly by many men who never fired a shot out of the weapons they carried on escort, or any similar weapon? We mounted constables were armed with revolvers and swords, we were taught the sword exercise but received no training in the use of revolvers, unquote. He talks about a colleague who was interested in firing one of the police rifles and who asked permission to do so. He was apparently advised, quote, he could fire as many shots as he liked at sixpence per shot, unquote. Apparently, he chose to fire off two, paying a shilling to his commander for the privilege. McIntyre did record, however, that when Nicholson finally took charge in Benalla in July 79, Noting that several officers had never fired a gun, he arranged for a class for, quote, practical use of their weapons, unquote. So one assumes that would have included actually shooting them. So we really can't hold that lack of training and skill against the individual constables on this ground, really. Once again, I think we can see the failure of the force at this time was first and foremost a failure of leadership from the top. However, there were sharp men in the force, and with a new approach, this time, sadly, was hopeful of flushing the Kellys out. In consultation with Sergeant Kennedy from Mansfield, as quoted in the last episode, plans were made to get some patrol groups together and head up into the ranges where the Kellys were expected to be hiding. 
Working in a pincer movement, they intended to ensure the Kellys would at least be disturbed if not captured, and hunted out of their familiar hideouts. Sergeant Kennedy from Mansfield had learned from a boundary rider from the Tolmy property nearby that he had come across some horse tracks and suggested that maybe Dan Kelly was prospecting there in the well-hidden camp in the vicinity of Stringybark Creek. Sadlier formulated a plan to capture them by sending two police parties in, dressed as ordinary bushmen, from different directions in order to trap them in the hills between Greeter and Mansfield. Kennedy agreed, suggesting that the area, being so densely forested, it may be necessary for a party from the Mansfield side to set up a kind of depot in the area and spend time scouting to at least disturb, if not capture Kelly, and he identified the officers that would best meet that task. The men from the King Valley on the Greeter side would begin working in the flatter, more open areas of that valley first. But once again, the police were not able to affect the stealth required, and Ned and Dan had already been warned about the expected presence of police in the ranges. This was a disturbing development for the lads, having the police move in on their territory. It would have had them feeling more nervous than usual, and on the lookout. The police group to leave from Greeter was expected to be led by Sergeant Steele, with Strawn from Greeter and Constables Tom and Ryan. Actually, Pat Quinn had earlier offered to take the Greeter police to the Kellys' hideout, provided they could guarantee they would not be shot, but Strawn had replied, quote, If I come across them, I'll shoot them like dogs. Unquote. This threat was made known to Ned, and so they knew now that they were in certain danger and could expect serious violence if the police did find them. I think this hard attitude only served to ensure that the Kellys would be just as ruthless in their response and they were as prepared as they could be for a fight, but they couldn't know exactly when they might encounter the police. No doubt the atmosphere at the hut was tense. The other police party coming in from the Mansfield side was led by Mansfield Sergeant Kennedy. Kennedy was well-liked in his patch, with a reputation for scrupulous fairness, and he was considered a brave and confident police officer. His Mansfield colleague, Scanlon, was also described as loyal and fearless. Scanlon was recruited into the Mansfield party because he was a good shot and an excellent bushman. So, in this instance, they did appear to have the high-quality officers on the job. Constables McIntyre and Lonigan made up the four, Lonigan being the one who might recognise the Kellys. Dressed as prospectors, Kennedy's scouting party started from Mansfield about 5am on Friday 25th of October. Though dressed in civvies, they were extraordinarily well-armed for any prospector, with revolvers, double-barreled breech-loading shotguns and a Spencer repeating rifle, the high-tech option of its time. Unlike many of the urban police that had been sent to the northeast to assist in the Cali hunt, Kennedy's men, McIntyre, Lonigan and Scanlon, though all Irish-born, were fit and strong and able horsemen. In fact, McIntyre later stated, quote, Kennedy was a good bushman, and good bushmen are not very common in the police, unquote. While they were all accustomed to the bush, they were not very familiar with the actual rangers they were entering, so there's no doubt the home-grown Kelly boys and their friends would still have had the upper hand in these hills, having grown up roaming the area. Kennedy's party reached the deserted prospector's hut at Stringybark Creek in the Wombat Ranges about 2pm and set up camp there. Leaving the others to their tasks, Kennedy, taking the Spencer rifle, went out alone to scout for a couple of hours. 
On the very day that Kennedy's men arrived, Ned and Joe had come across their horse tracks, heading towards that old prospector site at Stringerbuck Creek. This then placed the police less than a mile from the Kelly's Bullet Creek hut. The following dawn, Ned and Dan, quietly investigating the tracks they'd found the previous day, came across the camp, and they saw the four prospectors. Even without uniforms, they recognised them as police. Indeed, they believed they knew two of them. In the end, the man they had thought was Flood, Flood who had seduced Annie Kelly all those years back, was in fact McIntyre. And to their greater surprise, the man they thought to be Strawn turned out to be Lonigan, though Strawn was to be part of the second scouting group coming up from the greater side of the ranges. Lonigan, who was at the time stationed at Violet Town near Euroa, had been included in Kennedy's police party because he was the only one who could clearly recognise the Kelly brothers. This was the very same Lonigan, who was at one time stationed at Benella, where he was involved in that fracas with Ned in the shoe store years back, subduing him by roughly grabbing his wedding tackle, if you recall, from those earlier episodes. It was later reported that Lonigan was very nervous about joining the scouting party, as he apparently returned twice to farewell his wife and children again before finally setting off. Ned and Dan noted the substantial weapons case the police had brought into the hills, and it was clear from the volume of firearms and ammunition that the police were well prepared for a big shootout. Ned believed the police had no qualms about shooting him in the act of capture, as evidenced by Strawn's recorded comments. He thought it, quote, as if they meant not only to shoot me, but to riddle me, unquote, in a death reminiscent perhaps of the other notorious bushranger, Ben Hall, whose sad life and shocking death would have been big news in Ned Kelly's youth. This is an important insight, because if you think you are already a dead man yourself, perhaps you will fight with greater abandon, there being little chance of surrender or survival. They returned to the hut and told the others what they'd found, and began considering their options. Later that morning, Kennedy and Scanlon headed into the surrounding bush to scout, while Lonigan and McIntyre held camp. Kennedy must have been pretty relaxed about exploring the area, and he advised McIntyre, quote, Mac, don't be uneasy if we are not home tonight, unquote. It sounded like he was comfortable in the bush and not too concerned for his safety, and it certainly appears he did not imagine the Kellys were actually nearby. With Lonigan reading, McIntyre decided to go hunting, and he fired a couple of shots into a flock of parrots, which would provide their evening meal. Ned already knew of the police party also approaching from Greeter. Up till now, no police had found them and the shots he heard from Stringybark Creek would indicate that Kennedy's group were not aware of their close proximity either. But believing the whole area might soon be crawling with police, and escape from the area risky, the gang needed to decide on a plan of flight or fight. To fight would be a dangerous option. They had only a couple of old weapons, against what they knew in the nearby camp were substantial arms and ammunition. But considering that other police parties were probably also nearby, even fleeing, they would require provisions, weapons, ammunition and horses. Of course, all of those things were there at the police camp if only they could surround and disarm them. Perhaps knowing that the police were prepared and even keen to shoot them down, maybe the Kellys at least, felt there was little choice. But Joe Byrne and Steve Hart also opted to join them, despite neither of them yet being wanted by the police. And so they decided on capturing the police camp before leaving the area. 
What we know of the resulting encounter comes mainly from the accounts of McIntyre and of Ned Kelly, and the hearsay of those who heard their accounts soon afterwards. Ned, Dan, Joe and Steve armed themselves and headed back down to the police camp to watch its inhabitants. Some historians believe Tom Lloyd was also with them when this decision was made, and may have been keeping a lookout at the hut when the gang moved down to the police camp. But he's not recorded in any of McIntyre's or in Ned's accounts, so if he was nearby, he appears not to have directly taken any part in the ensuing incidents, even if he was with them on that day. So late afternoon they crept up to the camp. The gang could see that only two police were there when they arrived. After setting themselves up in an advantageous formation, Ned jumped forward with a cry, Bail up! Throw up your hands! McIntyre immediately threw up his arms. Lonigan dropped behind a log and reached for his revolver, raising his head to take aim. Ned shot him instead, the bullet hitting him in the right eye. Crying, Oh Christ, I'm shot! He dropped back and died. When Ned went to recover Lonigan's weapon and discovered who it was he had shot, he was astonished. After the shock of the shooting, and realising then that the other police must not have been nearby, Ned spent a good deal of time talking with McIntyre. He explained that the blame for this encounter could be laid squarely with Fitzpatrick's lies, putting his mother in jail and starting this sorry affair. He declared that he would, quote, shoot no man if he gave up his arms and promised to leave the police force, unquote. McIntyre made such a promise, but in the end he took his time to fulfil it, retiring from the force a few years later in September 1881. Ned explained further he had no wish to kill McIntyre, pointing out he could easily have done that before revealing himself and yelling bail up, and that he would spare Kennedy and Scanlon too if they could be persuaded to lay down their arms on their return, which McIntyre agreed to try and do, pleading with Kelly that they should not be blamed for doing their honest duty. McIntyre recorded what happened when they heard the two officers returning in his memoir. Quote, I stepped towards Kennedy and was about to explain the position to him when Kelly sang out, Bail up! Hold up your hands! Kennedy smiled and playfully put his hand on his revolver case. Judging from the expression on his face, he thought that Lonigan and I were jesting with him. Unquote. So it seems at this point, Kelly fired a shot over his head. McIntyre goes on, quote, Oh, Sergeant, I think you had better surrender, for we are surrounded, unquote. Kennedy then slid off his horse and began returning fire, one of his shots injuring Dan's shoulder. Scanlon, further behind Kennedy, and also seeing Lonigan's body some distance away, was now also well aware of the position they were in. He reached for the Spencer rifle that was strapped over his shoulder, but Ned fired, and Scanlon fell forward on his horse's neck and rolled off. Poor old Scanlon had been recruited to the party because he was a good shot, but he didn't get a chance to use his skill. He'd met his match and fell. So it seems from this account that Ned must have been firing at both police officers. McIntyre said the others were advancing, and with Kennedy returning fire, it was clear this was no longer an environment where one could surrender. He describes catching the reins of Kennedy's horse as it shied away past him towards the creek, as Scanlon's had done, and with difficulty he scrambled into the saddle, while Kennedy retreated behind trees firing at the Kellys. Clinging to the frightened horse he took off, 
and he heard Dan Kelly shouting behind him, quote, Shoot that fellow, shoot that fellow. Whether he was referring to myself or Kennedy, I cannot say, unquote. Now, elsewhere in his report, McIntyre had commented on Dan being quite the potty mouth and the most vulgar and snarling of the four. So the terminology used here was sanitised for his reading audience in 1902. Others recounted McIntyre's recollection as Dan shouting, Shoot the bastard, shoot the bastard, which sounds a little more likely. And there did seem to be shots flying in his direction, he said. Dan's comments, though, probably indicate he did not have a gun in hand himself, or at least not a loaded one. Later, Joe Byrne claimed he had fired after McIntyre. As McIntyre lurched forward over the horse's neck trying to keep his seat, he heard what he described as yells of delight behind him, though he was not sure if that meant they thought they had shot and at least injured him, or that something had occurred with Kennedy behind him which was a relief to them and made them whoop. The Kellys later said they thought they had shot McIntyre, but they did not feel confident, and so they were in haste to leave the area before he could possibly return with more police. Ned also recounted the story of what happened here to others in the months that followed, and so did Dan and Steve and Joe, no doubt, so many heard a version of what went on at Stringybark Creek. Ian Jones contends that Kennedy took cover behind the trees and that at some stage loaded another six cartridges. Ned started off after him, moving tree to tree away from the camp in the fading light. Then Kennedy appeared from behind a tree with his revolver aimed at Ned. Jones has Kelly later recounting, quote, He fired and the ball grazed my ribs. I shot him and... He ran, raising his arms as if to fire, and I fired and shot him. The bullet passed through the right side of his chest, and he could not live, unquote. I've abridged that paragraph a little, just for brevity. Running to him, Ned then realised that Kennedy had actually dropped his weapon some distance back. In the failing light, the blood from his first chest wound had run down his arm and made the dark appearance of a weapon still in hand. He then realised that Kennedy was probably surrendering when he raised his hands, and not about to shoot again after all. Ned claimed he then tried to make Kennedy comfortable, believing him to be slowly dying, and they exchanged a few words. He said Kennedy then began to suffer greatly, and not wanting to leave him alone and in agony, he then fired directly into his breast, killing him instantly. Some believe Ned fired this fatal shot despite Kennedy asking to let him live. Jones recounts a lengthy narrative, relayed much later through several people and widely published, which does suggest that scenario. But with only the two of them actually being there, and having only Ned's account as the first-person record, we'll never know what amount of compassion or cruelty Ned may have been displaying during those moments, or whether Kennedy actually made such a plea so we should maybe put that down to conjecture. Other accounts of Kelly's behaviour show he was capable, in equal measure, of both sympathetic kindness and of substantial violence. And whatever his thinking and motivation, it certainly is a shocking and brutal act. Certainly, more callous conduct was in evidence when Ned then went through Kennedy's clothing, taking money and valuables, including his gold watch, before once again acting with apparent empathy and covering Kennedy's body respectfully with his cloak. 
I guess to be charitable to Kelly, we could put the theft of the personal items down to financial desperation, knowing they would be in need of an escape fund. But they were actually kept like trophies rather than pawned, so that explanation probably doesn't really work. Ned later justified his actions at Stringybark Creek by claiming he was, quote, compelled to shoot them or lie down and let them shoot me. Their wives and children are to be pitied, but they must remember those men came into the bush with the intention of scattering pieces of me and my brother all over the bush, unquote. And he's right to an extent in that a self-defence perspective is worth considering. There was a contemporary history of police parties shooting down wanted men without warning, with no attempt to take them alive or to convince them to surrender. It was a different time then and a different force then. Though one argument might be they should have crept away without confronting the police at all. Another reference that we might perhaps take with a not very impartial pinch of salt is the hearsay that Superintendent Hare reports hearing later from Aaron Sherritt. Hare writes that, quote, Ned Kelly told Sherritt he made both Joe Byrne and Steve Hart fire into Kennedy whilst he was lying wounded as neither of them had shot either Scanlon or Lonergan, and he made them kill Kennedy so as to prevent their turning informers against him and his brother, unquote. I personally find that one hard to believe, and Kennedy's post-mortem injuries report matched Kelly's story, and not the one Aaron is supposed to have told Hare. But anyway, it's all pretty grim and horrifying. So sad. Returning to camp, they also turned out the pockets of the deceased Scanlon and Lonergan, taking money, watches and rings. One ring which Joe wore until his own death. So for me, the wearing of the rings all that time by Joe seems more like a prize and less like a theft in order to fund themselves and survive. I guess there could be many more takes on this behaviour as well, I suppose. They then collected all they needed from the police camp, rounding up the remaining horses and taking the food and equipment, as well as the weapons and ammunition. They set the police tent alight before returning to their own hut to recover and perhaps sleep some. And before dawn, they packed, saddled up, and knowing that their time hiding out there undiscovered was likely at an end, they also tried to set fire to the Bullock Creek hut before heading off in the increasingly heavy rain towards Greta. In fact, the rain actually doused the fire and the Kelly hut largely survived though it slid into ruin over the following years. McIntyre, recording his recollections 24 years later, wrote, quote, Several days after the murders, a party of police found a hut within a mile and a half of our camp. This hut was strongly built of slabs with open windows which could be used as portholes, and it was ascertained that the two Kellys, with heart and burn besides others, had been living in this hut, digging for gold on the creek, of which they succeeded in obtaining a small quantity. The hut was situated in a small clearing, and it was evident that they had a good supply of ammunition, for the trees surrounding and the outer distance from the hut were riddled with bullets, the bullet holes showing signs of lead having been too precious to waste, as it was cut out of the trees again, and no doubt recast into bullets." Unquote. Jones also advises in his book, when a sawmill was set up at the hut site in 1930, the last of it was destroyed then. Probably with Tom again scouting for the gang, they travelled miles in the heavy rain, stopping at Greta for food and clothes, 
before heading north, making for New South Wales. The following week was apparently one of exceptionally bad weather. Thunderstorms raged, the rain barely ceased, and all the rivers were swollen in flood. They headed on across the Oxley Flats, skirting around Beechworth and making for the border, but many of the rivers between were already too deep to ford, making progress more difficult and much time was spent searching for viable crossing places. They then met up with Aaron Sherritt and he guided them to a cave structure overlooking the Woolshed Valley, where he kept watch while they again slept. Crossing the swollen Murray River into New South Wales was to prove impossible though they appear to have tried many times over a couple of days. The weather was appalling, and the large numbers of police were now in confused pursuit, coming very close to the gang on a couple of occasions, and a crossing into New South Wales had to finally be abandoned. The group headed back southward into the mountain hideouts they knew well. During these few days, they had made deliberate contact with several groups, including purchasing some supplies and alcohol, probably for the injured Dan, and being fed at various homesteads. Many people must have recognised who they were, some with fear, but others with charity, such as the following encounter recorded in Ian Jones's book. Ned knocked at a door, and Mary Vandenberg unlocked the door to see a tall bearded bushman with three others standing behind him. He touched his hat and said, My men are in rags and must be fed. She knew who they were, but let them in and made a meal for them. Ned thanked her and apologised for not being able to pay for the meals. Of all the sorrowful sights I saw, it was those poor men, Mary recalled, describing Ned as a gentleman, nicely spoken, not bold. So that would have been an interesting encounter. Considering the deaths of the policemen must by then have been known all over the district, indeed all over the country, they were now police murderers. She appears not to be making any judgment about that. Jones continues, She did not worry her husband with the encounter when he returned home, but some weeks later he answered the door to a tall, bearded bushman who was delivering eight shillings to Mary. As he turned to leave, a gust of wind caught his coat, revealing the revolver in his belt. Some folks did report these encounters to the police at the time, but they appear not to have made any good use of that intelligence. And despite the Kellys almost physically running into the police at a crossing in Wangaratta, by the following Sunday, they'd made for the Warby Rangers nearby and completely disappeared again into their own well-known backyard. Getting back to the Stringybark Creek site, after McIntyre had escaped on Kennedy's horse, he spent an anxious night fearing for his life. He initially imagined that all of the many shots he could hear behind him were aimed at him, and so he just kept on riding at full speed. He was not hit, though Joe later said he did fire after him. He also thought some of the gang at least might be pursuing him, possibly on Scanlon's horse, and so initially he headed northward. He then swung westwards, hoping to cross the telegraph line between Benalla and Mansfield. From his 1902 memoir he writes, quote, Throwing myself to the right or the left to avoid the branches as well as I could, I did not succeed in escaping many bruises and scratches which were little thought of at the time, but some of which have left their scars to the present day. Unquote. Thinking that Kelly might be behind him, he reported, and again I've abridged the commentary here a little. I did not know how close he might be upon my trail, for I dare not look around to see without running great danger of being dashed to pieces against one of the numerous trees. 
After I had proceeded in this manner for about a mile, I suddenly came upon some spreading branches of a tree that caught me across the chest, and I was thrown with great violence. If I was not rendered unconscious, I was for a time confused and bewildered. The horse had stopped shortly after my fall, and I managed to catch him again. On mounting him, after some difficulty, I found that I could scarcely get him to proceed, and also finding myself so much shaken and injured by the fall that I doubted whether I could endure the motion of a horse. I again dismounted, and taking off the saddle and bridle, I turned the horse loose and threw the saddle and bridle into some long ferns." Unquote. In the days to come, McIntyre was reported to be blackened with bruising all over his body by the doctors. After setting the horse free, he travelled a while on foot, before coming across some wombat holes, and he crawled into one, feet first, to conceal himself and wait out the terrifying night, listening for sounds of the gang in pursuit. Before complete darkness descended, he wrote in his memo book what had occurred, while it was fresh in his mind, including that Lonergan had been drawing his revolver, indicating that Ned had fired in self-defence, and he had not been shot in cold blood, as was later implied. In an effort, perhaps, to meet the desires of his superiors, he would later modify several details of his testimony, including this point. In Keneally's book, he quotes what was written in McIntyre's notebook that night, though he does not describe how he got access to that material. His quote says in part, Ned Kelly and the others stuck us up today when we were disarmed. Lonergan and Scanlon shot. I am hiding in a wombat hole till dark. Lord have mercy on me. Scanlon tried to get out his gun. After some time had passed, and he felt safe enough to emerge, he began planning a way to navigate in the darkness to the Benalla Road and raise the alarm. He had a compass in his pocket, but only three matches to use to read it, so he began marking his way just by picking stars to try and keep in sight of. He stated he made very slow progress in the dark, and also because of the physical effects of the fall. It's been reported in many places that he removed his boots in an attempt to avoid leaving tracks. Unaware, perhaps, that the Aboriginal trackers had been skilled at tracking barefoot men for many tens of thousands of years. It's also worth noting, in his confused state, he hasn't remembered that while a skilled bushman, Kelly was not actually an Aboriginal tracker himself. But in his memoir, he actually indicates he crossed several creeks. His wet boots gave him such severe blisters that he was obliged to take one off and walk in his stocking. It's hard to know if he was just trying to redeem his honour in this memoir after all that time passed. He certainly got a lifetime of ribbing about hiding in a wombat hole, so no doubt there would have been comment about the boot removal too, whatever his actual motive. Interestingly, he also comments that it was a beautiful clear night, such that he was able to navigate by a visible star. But we know that the burning Kelly hut was extinguished by extreme rainfall around dawn the following morning, so it's interesting to ponder at what time the sky clouded over and produced all that rain. It's certainly hilly and very rough terrain around Stringybark Creek, so he did very well to make his way in the desired direction, referring to his compass only a couple of times before he ran out of matches. He felt he was close to the direction he was hoping for by the time the sun came up, and again he reports it predicting a hot day, though he does say, quote, and sultry, unquote. It's hard to reconcile the reports. 
Though perhaps the awful weather was coming in from the other side of the range. Hmm. Or by sultry did he mean wet? Certainly the weather can be very changeable in the northeast, at the foot of the Australian Alps, such as they are. Anyway, by 9am he was totally exhausted, and fearing that he may collapse before making it to Mansfield, he stopped once again and wrote in his notebook about the night that he had just endured. Passing one deserted hut, and then seeing a second, he made his way towards that. Quote, I got to Duran Station at noon, Seeing nobody about, I was just going in when I saw a number of horses, and amongst them two horses which looked like troop horses belonging to our party. Thinking that the Kellys had stuck up the station and turned the horses out for a spell, I turned to the left and made for Mansfield. Unquote. He reached McColl's farmhouse near Mansfield about 3 p.m., so he'd really undertaken quite a feat of endurance after the shock of the ambush. He had kept his wits about him pretty well throughout the whole ordeal, and then added on a marathon walk in one shoe. Like me, the McColl family were completely amazed, and then they were alarmed by his story. They arranged for a buggy and took him to Mansfield to report the murders. On arrival at Mansfield, they went directly to Inspector Putris's private residence to raise the alarm. He wrote, quote, when that gentleman came to the door and saw the state I was in, he said, Good God, McIntyre, what has happened? They are all killed, sir, I said, every one shot by the Kellys but myself. Unquote. So we'd better wrap up today's rather disturbing episode here for the moment. There is a lot more to talk about regarding the Stringybark Creek and more to say about the activities that followed immediately afterwards. But this has been a long session today and we'll return to it in the following episode in a fortnight looking at what occurred after the alarm was raised. It was a devastating outcome for the three grieving families, indeed for all involved. The stakes were now as high as they could get. I look forward to exploring those resulting events with you in a fortnight. Remember the reading list and the additional material on the Australian Histories podcast website and that there's contact details there also. And uh, once again, if you are enjoying the podcast, I'd be delighted if you could share it or tweet it or leave a review on iTunes or your preferred pod provider. It really does uh, make the show more visible and it will increase the community listening to our program and that would be lovely. Anyway, thank you so much. Take care and enjoy discovering that weird and wonderful history all around you. I'll talk with you again in two weeks. Cheers.